are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. I hope everyone had a wonderful Fourth of July yesterday. Despite the mist, it was so foggy, and I think I, you know, God forbid, but. I think I scarred my child for the rest of her life. I, I, I went out and purposely bought, like, I went out and I said, what is the most quiet firecracker or fire thing? And, and they go, oh, it's the smallest one right here. And he said it so confidently, I had to, I mean, he's the guy selling it, right? So I was like, okay, I'll get it. And it was like this small. And so yesterday I set it up along with, I made a little beautiful sparkler type of display. And I had it up and I lit it. And the thing made the loudest like crack or whatever. I mean, it, it's, it was so scary that even we just kind of like, Grace and I just kind of jumped back. And of course, our daughters just like bawling like crazy, like, Dad, I'll never trust you again. <laughs> Daddy issues right now. And um, so I'm, I'm praying for healing. <laughs> but man, yeah. That was, okay, anyways. Uh, it's good to see everyone here. Now, I want to talk about rice cookers. We have a rice cooker at home. And I'm sure maybe you guys have it too, whether you're Asian or not. It's just a good thing to have. We have a rice cooker that I think was made alongside Skynet or NASA or something. I can't for the life of me work out that stupid thing. And the problem would be solved if it was just a tech issue. I could go in the manual and say, okay, I got to press this, I got to do that, and, and I could just look it up and, and, and fix it from there and just do it from there. But, but what kind of messes me up here is I, I always mess up with the water and the rice proportion. Does anyone feel me here? No? You're all good with that? Now, here's the thing. My wife, Grace, she, she makes always the perfect bowl. But even when I try to follow her, it goes all off. You guys would laugh at me at the way I, I do it. I have the rice, and I pour out a couple cups, right? And then I pour in water, and I'll rinse it, like, I don't know, like a million times, right, to the point where there's no more rice. <laughs> and then I'll, pour, and I'll dump it out and make sure that, you know, not, no, like, you know, pesticides are on or whatever they put on rice, you know. And afterwards, I'll, I'll pour in the fresh water, and then I'll, I'll try to measure it with my, my finger, and I'll say, okay, well, no, that's too much. And then I remember Grace saying, you should use your palm. Right? That's how she does it, so I do that. But then I realized my hand is like five times the size of hers, so it doesn't make any sense either. So I'm trying to do that, and, and it's, just, it's just difficult. It's just truly difficult. And I'm, but to no avail, right? And then, she's, um, <clears throat> then I, I mess it up somehow, always, of course. And she goes, you know, my wife goes, no, all you have to do is pour this, rinse that, and then press this. Oh, that's all you have to do. That's like me saying to you all, all you have to do is not sin. Right? <laughs> then Grace, she makes it. And when she does, when she does the whole thing, it doesn't look any different from what I do. But it comes out perfect. It doesn't make any sense to me. And so then I realize, A, I will never be able to cook rice ever again. But B, there truly is a fine line between making perfect moist rice and making overcooked or undercooked or super dry or super wet rice. There is a fine line between victory and disaster. That's what temptation is. That's my segue. That's what temptation is. It's that line right there between holiness, 
and between worldliness, between righteousness and between and wickedness, between love and hate. You get the idea. There's this fine line. Where are you? Now, there's only really two points I want to address here. The first is this. We cannot blame God when we're tempted. We cannot blame God when we're tempted. You've heard that saying before. You stub your toe. Something happens to you. You go, oh, the devil made me do it. You've heard that, right? Maybe you've used that. Well, before that saying came out, there was an older saying, and that was, God made me do it. Who was the first one to say it? It was Adam. You see, when Adam sinned in the garden, the garden of Eden, not the olive, what did he say to God? He says, hey, God, the woman you put here with me made me ate it. In other words, he's saying, God, none of this would have happened if you hadn't put that woman here. You hear that? Some of the guys are like, yeah. In other words, he's saying, God, it's your fault. You see this? I'm innocent. God, it's your fault. And sadly, that excuse is still being made today. You know, I remember I went to the SBC conference a few weeks back, the Southern Baptist Conference, and I had the joy of hanging out with my fellow seminary and friends there, people I've never met before, some alumni. Well, I got close to this one individual, mainly because we find ourselves sitting at the, at the same table at the luncheon, and we both didn't bring anyone with us, right? Both our wives are home. And then we just became like best friends. Doesn't that, isn't that how it usually happens? You just accidentally sit next to someone and then you become best friends, which is why, brothers and sisters and friends, I'm going to encourage you guys. After worship, when we go down to our fellowship, you sit down next to someone you don't know. That person could very well be your bosom buddy, your kindred spirit. Okay? You sit down with that person. You get to know that person, whether you intentionally for all these months and years have ignored them or unintentionally ignored them. But sit down with them and get to know them. Amen? Amen? Amen. My goodness. So I was talking to, he's, he's a local guy actually, um, so I'll call him Adam. So Adam was telling me about his church situation. It was a medium-sized church, and, and at that time in his life, he was feeling the pangs of ministerial woes. People weren't understanding him. Congregation people were just kind of fed up with him perhaps. People were overburdening him, and he didn't have enough time with his family, not enough financial support, too much to do, not enough time to do it, etc. It just goes on and on. Like, we've all been there, haven't we, to some degree? I have as well. Well, as he was pouring his heart out, and, and I truly sympathize with this brother. I truly empathize with him. He said a comment that really lingered with me, and by God's grace at that moment gave me the courage and the wisdom to respond quickly to him. He said this. He said, David, at the end of the day, I don't know how many times I would go home, and I would just end up crying. And I would end up praying. And then I will start saying, God, was I really called into ministry? And it was at that moment my heart really leaped out because if I were to be honest, yes, there have been times where even I have succumbed to my circumstances and questioned God and questioned myself, questioned ministry. But here the Holy Spirit prompted me to really scrutinize what this guy was saying, what Adam was saying. He, like many others who are serving, perhaps some of you guys are serving and feeling this way too, there's, this is what we're essentially saying when, when we say, God, did you really call me here? We're saying, God, I think you made a mistake. You get that? I think you made a mistake when you brought me here. Really? You brought me here? I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Really? Am I really the person that I should be here? Or maybe, God, maybe you weren't clear enough with me. Maybe I'm not supposed to do this or be here. In other words, God, you see this mess I'm in? 
this heartache and this pain and these trials and tribulations I'm facing in your name for the sake of your kingdom and all that stuff. I'm not equipped enough. I'm not supposed to be, supposed to be the leader. I'm not enough. God, you made that mistake. I shouldn't be here. Maybe you thought that. I want to say this right now. God, he does not mess up. No matter how bad you feel or how messed up you feel, God does not mess up. Turn to your neighbor and say this. God does not mess up. You see, he, God, he does not tempt us to make us squirm and regret. God, he tests us to bring us up. Satan tempts us to bring us down. God, he puts pressure on us to make us strong. Satan puts pressure to make us break. But here's the beauty of all this. Even when we do break, and let me say, there have been so many times when we have, haven't we? When we just break and be like, I can't take this. When we break under these temptations, God, he is good enough and he is strong enough to collect those pieces and recreate something bigger and better. Something bigger and better. Something stronger, something better than before. You see, in the light of your current circumstance, whatever it may be, maybe it's financial issues, relational issues, career issues, whatever it is, you're being made better right now. Whether you know it or not, because as you prayerfully pursue and trust God in the midst of your circumstances, you're being made better. Better. We must not confuse who our God is and what he does. So let's let James tell us a couple things about this God of ours. God, he cannot be tempted by evil. Verse 13. God is literally untemptable. That's not a real word. Microsoft document, there's a red squiggly line underneath it. But he's untemptable. Why? Because God is good, and he is perfect, and he is holy. Has anyone here ever lusted? Don't raise your hand. I know you all did. Not just sexually, but have you lusted after something or someone? Look, I'm sure even married people here have, or people who are in relationships have lusted too. And you're not trying to, but, in a, but when a moment or a visual slips in, it can be hard to resist or what about that people with that person who after dealing with a difficult person got in an argument, you later go back home or you're in your car driving back and you're just fuming and you, you rehash the entire conversation and you wish that you could have said this, <laughs> right? Oh, if I could have, oh man, this would have been so good if I said that. You, you, you think about this and you wish you could put that person back in their place and if I could come back with this retort, this comeback and really, oh man, because I, oh. You know what that is? That's not right. That's sin. That's the sin nature within us. There are times when we might be good and holy, but there are certainly times when we might think, speak, dream out of defiance, act out, and we allow sin to creep up and creep, creep in into our lives. Let me tell you something about God, though. He's different from us. After we spew out these lies and rebellious words and stuff like that, God doesn't go, oh, I wish I'm going to get you. No. You know why? Evil has absolutely no appeal to God. God hates everything about it. This wickedness, this sinfulness, this evilness that we are surrounded with, it's repulsive to him. I, I hate it when people, and I don't understand when people say, oh, if God is truly God, then why is there wickedness? You think God likes that? 
You think God is like, yes, I love when people are being raped. I love it when war is happening over there with this, where people are just being unjustly executed and, and killed. Oh, yes, I love when there's poverty-stricken countries and stuff like that. You think God is just gleeful? He hates it. He absolutely hates it. It's repulsive to him. He takes no pleasure in it. Evil and wickedness is the opposite of everything he is, which is why temptations and sins are totally and eternally forever separate from God's character. There's nothing evil, wicked, wrong, false, deceitful about God. That is not the God of the Bible. We cannot and must not blame God when we are tempted because God is God. He is holy. Secondly, not only is he holy, and that describes who he is, but verse 13 also describes what God does not and that is what, what is that? He does not tempt us. Remember, God is faithful to his character. He cannot step out of his character. I remember speaking with a youth student a few years back. And she would tell me how her father looked and her eyes was far different from how he truly was behind closed doors. Needless to say, I was shocked because her father was a very respected man here in the church. He was a well-dignified man, a man of God, as some would say. He is a loved guy, well-respected here. And to hear these things, granted, it's only her side of the story. But still, it was, it was shocking to hear that. Really? You're saying your dad, did th your dad did this and your dad said that about you and towards you and he did that to you? You can never really know for sure who a person truly is because people, humans, we can all step in and out of our perceived character. Right? How many times were you like, I'm shocked by hearing this about you. I'm shocked that this is who, who, who you are to me. I never knew this about you. We are duplicitous, are we not? Yeah, we try to hide it. We try not to be sometimes what we are. People, when you start dating, some sound advice here, okay? That person you're dating will be different from the person that you're going to end up marrying. Can married people say amen? Everyone tries to put their best foot forward only to become completely different later on. I think when Grace and I when we date those seven times. I like to think that I was being real with her. And I think I was. But there were definitely moments throughout our dating when I would think, okay, dang, man, what would Jesus do? <laughs> Case in point, we saw a comedy together. It was a typical Hollywood comedy movie. And, and there were times when something risque or just crude would come up. And the whole time I would be thinking, it would, be, would it be holy to laugh at this? What would Jesus do right about now? Would she immediately label me as some depraved heathen? Is this the right moment to laugh? Can I chuckle? Would that be too much? Is that too? We go back and forth, don't we? We may step out of character, but God, he never steps out of his character. He cannot and does not act in opposition to his own nature. Now, in what way might we think anyone would blame God? I think most of the blaming happens when we just don't know who he is, when we have a misunderstanding of his character, when we don't get his nature. A person who's had a terrible father, a dad who was abusive, he was a tyrant, so whenever they hear that God is our father, man, they immediately associate their hated father with their heavenly father, and so they think that God is out to get them. 
that God, he's short, that he's bitter, that he's like some big bully up in the clouds with a magnifying glass trying to fry you. That's the type of God. And so I worship out of fear rather than love. Friends, no matter how broken we are or how broken the place we've come from might have been, God is so different. God, he doesn't change. He's not emotional. He's not callous. He's not tyrannical. He's not abusive. He's not evil. He's not what any person might have been like to you. The God of the Bible is full of compassion. His mercy is everlasting. He knows our weakness and so therefore helps. He is tender. He is gentle. He is loving. He is full of kindness and encouragement. This is how great our God is. God is a God of justice, as in he hates sin, right? He cannot allow sin to go unpunished, and yet his justice, his own justice is met by his own mercy. Is met by his own grace to the point where he himself provided for our salvation through Jesus. God is not out to get you. He's out to save you. His love for you is the most perfect love you'll ever experience. Don't mistake his motives when he tests you. Don't misinterpret his goals of sanctifying you when you endure hardship. Don't lose sight of his glory when you struggle. Don't blame God when you're tempted. And now you're probably scratching your heads thinking, wait, trials and temptations. Pastor David, you said a couple of those words now. What's the difference? And this goes to our next point. Do not give in to your temptations. Turn to your neighbor and say that. Don't give in to your temptations. Who here likes fishing? I don't. But fishing is a great illustration of what temptation often is like for us. When you go fishing, you use that long plastic stick thingy that has a plastic rope on it. You throw it out and you wait for the fish to get hooked. Now the fish may swim past it a couple times, but soon its innate internal desire to eat that bait or that worm will be so overwhelming that it's going to soon come over and chomp right at it. And next thing you know, the hook will sink into its flesh. Verse 14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. It's just like the fish. Because you have to ask yourself, why does that fish even look in the first place? Why doesn't he just swim on by? Because there's something inside of him that wants that bait. As long as he keeps swimming by, yeah, he's free. But he has this desire, this intense desire to have it. Have you ever experienced that when it comes to sin? You don't know why, but you just want it. You're just compelled. You're drawn to it. You don't know what it is. That's no different with us in regard to evil. Ask yourself this. Why do I even look? Why can't we just walk on by? Because here's the truth, people. This is a difficult truth for some. Evil is not just outside in the world. Evil is also within us. That's called sin nature, people. The Bible calls that evil desire. He calls it lust. It's the inner craving for things. We call it sin. You see, the problem, it was not the bait. The bait is not the issue. The problem was the hunger inside of him that wanted that bait. And so it rings true for us too. Because wherever you go, temptations will be there. Wherever we are, problems will constantly plague us. But the thing is, those temptations will become difficult to us, will truly become difficult for us 
when it finds a responsive chord within our hearts. And then once it gets attracted, our desire, our lust begins to drive us to pursue it. In verse 15, James brilliantly, by the Spirit of God, breaks down the anatomy of temptation. First, it goes like this. The inner cravings or sinful lust, it drags us away. In Greek, this means to take us out of our safe place. You know what that means? It's like a fish drawn out from its hiding place. The first part, it removes us from the safety of self-restraint, as one commentator puts it. You get drawn out. You kind of stick your head out of their house and be like, What's going on? Secondly, that same lust then entices us. The Greek word has a root word for it, which is bait, which also means to entice or to beguile. The fish thing, that, that lure or that bait is an actual worm or small fish. It's a trick. In other words, we're lured from our place of safety, driven by our lust, by the promise of some tasty fulfillment. The idea that this thing, this bait, this temptation has something that I really need right now when all it is is just an imitation. And so what do we do? We fall into relationships after relationships. We give our body. We give our purity. We compromise spiritually. Why? Because we think that him or her will be the love that we truly need. Don't you know that even that is but a mimic? Even that, even the person that you say you love, and that's who says they love you, even that person will fall short. And that person cannot compare to the perfect love of God. And that person is but just an imitation. And so we say, I want you because I think you are what I need. This tasty fulfillment. No. How many times have we fallen prey to that? Brothers and sisters, we need to be saying no before any of this stuff happens. And here's why it's important to do this before we go any further. Verse 15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. What is this verse saying? How does our desire or lust conceive? That sounds like a weird word. Here, here it is. It mates our desire, our lust, mates with our will. And here's the thing, people. Our situations are not sin. Our desire was not necessarily sin. Even the enticement was not sin. But at this point, we're just swimming around freely. We're just kind of doing our thing. But it's when our will says yes, whether we think it or word it or act on it, when our will mates with our evil desires, that's when sin is born. Now the whole world right now is saying, just go with your feelings. Do what you want. Trust your heart. Be true to yourself. Here's the thing. If you do, you'll be drawn out, enticed, and hooked by sin. We cannot say yes to our lusts. We cannot say yes to our temptations. Before it even gets to the point of conceiving into sin, we got to stop it. I'm sorry to say this, but people, your desires aren't always good. In fact, if everyone acted on their own desires, there would be a great deal of destruction within us and all around us. God says in Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Lust plus an opportunity equals enticement. Enticement plus your will of saying yes equals sin. Sin 
plus allowing it to gestate and to grow to maturity equals death. We often think that sin just comes out of nowhere. No. Let me say this. Sin has been working inside us for a while. One author described it through generational wickedness. He said, the grandmother lusted, the mother sinned, and the daughter died. We can't say, oh my goodness, I'm shocked that I've done this sin. Do you know what the common denominator of adultery for males is, for males particularly? It's an addiction to pornography. You don't have to be a genius to figure out why. No guy or woman can say that the affair just happened. That there, was, that there was just lust and an opportunity, whether through the computer or through emotions of the colleague that led to enticement. Then that enticement and your will to say yes created that sin of adultery and ultimately devastation and death upon your marriage and family. It doesn't just happen. It stemmed from something. It grew from something to a point where we didn't say no. And once we start down that road, once we act in response to the enticement of our own desires, the inevitable result is sin, and sin brings death, destruction, and separation from God. Let me say this. It is not daring or being true to yourself to open yourself up to these adventures of potential sin. You're not being cool. You're not being, you know, progressive. No, the Bible makes it clear. You're just being foolish. Don't start down that road no matter how enticing it may look. God warns us there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Look, I don't know what particular enticements you have or what desires you're struggling with, but right now we have to concede this. We are not wiser than God. Like God, he knows something we don't. It may not make sense to us right now, but God, he knows better. If he says that we should not play with fire, maybe we should not play with fire. Yesterday was 4th of July. Like I said, I, I set up a little display of sparklers so that Ada could enjoy them, my daughter. The thing about sparklers is that while you can hold it, it's still hot and it will burn you if you, properly, uh, if you do not properly manage it. Well, Ada, she wanted to hold it and she saw that it was pretty, but we said no because we know that she will try to touch it we know that sparklers will and could burn her skin. And so could it be that maybe God knows that these temptations and sins, that he knows what they do to us? Maybe something that we just don't understand, that we're just not getting right now. Now for some, perhaps you're listening to me and you're saying, Pastor David, I appreciate what you're saying. I hear your warnings. I hear what the Bible's saying. But Pastor David, I'm afraid it might be too late for me. I'm sure for many people here, the battle has already been lost. Lust has already been conceived. Sin has been born, and now it grows stronger each day, tormenting you every single day. Maybe you think it's hopeless, that you're done, that you can't defeat it, that this will be your life forever right now. A broken marriage because of adultery. Depression because of addiction to alcohol. Shame and guilt because of promiscuity. Deep insecurities because you lived a life of lies, etc. The list goes on and on. And I say this to you, dear sinner. And I say this to you, dear fallen brother or dear fallen sister or dear hypocrite like myself that I've also committed, dear insert whatever the heck you want to call yourself, I've got good news for us here in the name of Jesus. I want to read these sweet words that are like honey to our lips. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they will comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let those words soak into our aching hearts, and this is it. He restores my soul. Whatever you've gone through, no matter how bad it was, God restores your soul. Nothing else. King David, he was saying this, and he certainly didn't know how this would look like, this whole restoring of soul. But we know what it looks like. Because those sins that have created those wounds, that have created those devastating, deathly years of our lives, Jesus hung on the cross. And he took on the justice of God for our sins so that you and I wouldn't have to face it. And so it's with his open arms, he says to us, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You see, when you're at the cusp of sinning, at the cusp of temptation, and maybe some of you guys have fallen prey to it, know this, Jesus restores my soul. He will bring you back. He will defeat it for you. He has defeated it for you. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen or how hopeless your situation is, by God's unchanging promises through his word, I call you back to Jesus today. The line between victory and defeat is indeed a fine line, but in Christ Jesus, you can choose life. In Jesus, you can choose truth. In Jesus, you can choose holiness. In Jesus, you can choose God. Did you know that? And all this is possible because he did it first. He made the way. When we go through temptations, we must not blame God. And right now, today, whatever it is that you're facing, do not give in to your lusts. Squash that temptation before it conceives into sin and death. And when we say there's victory in Christ, it doesn't just mean that he's won. It also means that we've won. But in order for us to have that freedom, hear me out, for the, especially for those who do not have a relationship with Christ, it, in order for us to have that freedom and power to overcome sin, we must first confess in Jesus to forgive us for the sins that we are before we can confess the sins that we do. Let's pray. What is the Lord saying to you, brothers and sisters? I don't want to fill your mouth. I don't want to fill your minds but what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? You know what a good relationship is or a good marriage? or It's when both want to work at it and do better and to grow and to mature and to fix problems, not to ignore it, to expose weaknesses, not to hide it, it is no different between our relationship with the Lord. Is there something? Is there a weakness? Is there an issue? Is there a problem? And as we prepare for communion, we have to think about that. We dare not go before 
a perfect and holy God in an unworthy manner where we say, yeah, God, I'll just uh, do this for the sake of tradition or because I was born into a Christian family. What does that even mean? Well, yeah, God, I'll go ahead and, and say that you're God even though I really don't believe it and I certainly don't live it. I think God purposely allowed the sermon to, this particular sermon to fall on this communion day. But maybe because there are sins that are unaccounted for in our lives. And I'm not saying this to just remain solemn and, and all make everyone depressed and sad. No, the whole point of this is, is that there's resolution in Christ. I mean, maybe we should change the rhythm of communion. Now, we need to understand we have freedom in Christ. Our sin, our pain, there's victory from that. But at the same time, there should be a deep sense of godly sorrow and the fact that it is because of our sins and our rebelliousness that we place Jesus up on that cross. So, brothers and sisters, I'm going to give you guys just a brief moment and just to pray that prayer. If there's something in the way, for the glory of God and for your own personal sake with, in your relationship with Christ. Lay it before him right now. Lay it before him. Admit your failing. Admit your insecurity. Admit your fear. That does not make you any less of a person. In fact, it makes you, it will heal you. It will make you better. It will make you stronger knowing that God is the one who will lead you. So let's take this moment and pray that, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon your great promise and your truth. And yes, though there's great joy and excitement, Lord, for the everlasting joy that you have given us through the death <coughs> and sacrifice of your son, Jesus, the very fact that it did require the death and sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would now approach the throne of your grace, weighing the costs, knowing indeed, Lord, that it was our sin that placed him up there. And God, there is a deep sense of seriousness, of holiness, Lord, of, of hatred towards the things that have hurt you, of deep hatred towards things that are against you. So, Lord, I pray that you would lead us right now in this time of communion. And, and we do this, Lord, because it's not just about the death. It's not even just about the resurrection, but, Lord, it's also about the fact that you're coming back. And when you come back, Lord, you restore everything. When you come back again, Father, you'll make all things that are wrong right. Lord, when you come back again, Lord, we will see the truth. It will be so visible. And you'll reclaim us. You'll bring us back. So we thank you, Lord, that we are not here alone. Lord, we await our Savior. We love you. We thank you. We do this in remembrance of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.